chapter 6. I preach on Sunday evenings when Pastor Walton is away. Uh, You know our normal rhythm, I think. I, I preach mornings. Pastor Walton generally preaches evenings, and so it means I only preach evenings maybe once every six weeks or so. Uh, And so for several years, we've been working through the life of David, and we're at a little bit of a disadvantage because it's typically four to six weeks between these sermons, and so it's easy for us to forget what's going on. Uh, So let me give you a reminder. In 2 Samuel 6, David has finally become king after many, many, many years of waiting. Saul was the previous king, and under Saul's leadership, Israel's spiritual life and health deteriorated. One of the clearest proofs of that is that the Ark of the Covenant, which was central uh, to Old Covenant worship, was taken into battle almost as a good luck charm against the Philistines, and it was lost at battle. The Philistines took it, and the worst part of that is nobody seems to have noticed, and so for decades, the, the Ark of the Covenant has been sitting up in, in the house of a man named Abinadab up in kiriath Jearim. When David ascends to the throne, one of the first things he does as king is to retrieve the ark and restore it to its central place in Israel's worship. Now, David's desires were commendable, and it showed all of Israel that the the worship of God was the highest priority of the new king. And so he gathered the people, and there was a great celebration as they prepared to move the ark from Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem. But celebration turned rapidly into mourning when, as the ark was being carried, one of the men carrying it, Uzzah, was suddenly struck dead. Why would God put such a damper on a well-intended celebration that would restore the worship of Yahweh to the rightful place in Israel? It was because God had given very careful instructions about how the ark was to be transported, And David and the people, they had those instructions, but they paid them no attention. In fact, the way they transported the ark was more similar to the pattern of the Philistines, how they had transported the ark out of Philistia into Kiriath-Jerim than it was the way God had instructed them. And so as the ark, and because they were carrying it the wrong way, one of the oxen trips, falls, Uzzah, one of the men uh, helping to transport it, he reaches out to grab the ark which he should never have done, and he struck dead that moment. Well, David, out of fear after that scene, left the ark. But as our text picks up, some time has passed, and once again, they're going to try to bring the ark back to Jerusalem. This time, David and the people are attentive to the Lord's instructions. Now, you may be thinking, didn't he preach on this a few weeks ago? And the answer is yes. We focused very narrowly on this specific event. This evening, what we're going to do is look at the same passage in light of a broader question, and that is, does God care how we worship Him? Does God care how we worship Him? And and the answer is yes, and He teaches us how to worship Him in the Scriptures. So listen now to the reading of God's Word, 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting at verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. 
And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Mishal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his own house. David returned to bless his household, but Mishal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Mishal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Mishal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I said a moment ago, we looked at this passage under the microscope a few weeks ago, and so if you're wanting to know things like what exactly I think David was doing there, dancing and all of that stuff, you'll have to go back to that sermon. Tonight, we're going to look at this through the telescope. We're, we're going to look at this broadly, looking at the whole swath of Scripture to ask the question, does God care how we worship? And we're going to look through the whole of Scripture to find these principles about how we are to worship God. And so what we're going to do this evening is I'm going to ask five questions about worship, and we're going to look to the scriptures for answers. I did not print the outline in your bulletin. In fact, I was wrestling with it even up until this afternoon. Well, the first question is, does God still care how we worship him? Does God still care how we worship him? Now, that sounds like a strange question. I should say, does God care how we worship him? But I say, does God still care? And the reason I say that is nobody that knows the Old Testament would deny that in the Old Covenant, God was very precise about worship. He was precise about offerings. He was precise about the clothing that the priests would wear. He had instructions for just about everything. And so a lot of people are going to say, sure, in the Old Covenant, there were lots of regulations about worship. They touched on everything from offerings to the, to the people who, who could bring the uh, offerings to who could enter in the Holy of Holies. But now in the New Covenant, haven't all those restrictions passed away and all God really cares about is our hearts? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. The ceremonial laws of worship have passed away, not because they were irrelevant, but because they're fulfilled in Christ. But that doesn't mean that God is indifferent to how we worship. The general principle of those ceremonial laws in the old covenant still remains today. And the general principle is that God cares how we worship him. We, we don't worship God according to our imaginations. We don't worship God according to our own desires. We worship God according to scripture. You see that in the Old Testament. You see that in the ceremonial law. And that doesn't change as we come into the new covenant. Look with me at John 4 for a moment. John 4 is the famous account of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. 
they start to have a conversation and Jesus gets into some uncomfortable territory bringing up some of her past sins. She does what a lot of a lot of us do when the preacher starts talking about personal stuff. She changes the subject. Look at John 4, starting at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Uh, under the old covenant, the hub of worship was Jerusalem, but the Samaritans, with their sort of syncretistic worship, uh, worshiped on Mount Gerizim. And so she's saying, what is it? Where should we worship? Now, I love theology, but I also know sometimes we can hide behind theology to protect from dealing with important heart issues. And so Jesus doesn't really entertain this question very much. He goes straight for the heart. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now that's fascinating language altogether. The Father is seeking worshipers. Isn't that interesting? It tells us a lot about our salvation. Why did Jesus come to seek and save the lost? Well, to fill his, fulfill his Father's plan of seeking worshipers who would worship him. Uh, so how do we worship him as redeemed people? How, how do we worship him as new covenant people? Look at verse 24. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So here we see the continuity and the distinctions of old covenant and new covenant worship. No, Jesus says you don't have to worship in Jerusalem any longer. Wherever the Spirit is present, uniting us to Christ and uniting us to one another, that's the place where we worship God. Okay, so you don't care then how we worship. Can we just worship Him however the Spirit leads us, however we feel like in the moment? That's not what our Lord is saying. He says you're to worship Him in spirit and in truth. See, worship isn't a feeling-led free-for-all. Where the Holy Spirit is truly guiding people in worship, worship will be done according to the scriptures. God still cares how we worship. Let me show you this in a couple more places in the New Testament. Look at Matthew 15 for a moment. In Matthew 15, Jesus rebukes the empty worship of the Pharisees. And he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. That's a scary thought, isn't it? Jesus says there is a type of worship that is in vain. There is a type of worship that is really a waste of time. He's speaking here to people who have devoted their whole lives to the religious worship of Judaism, and he says, it is all in vain. Well, how, how so? Look carefully what he says at the end of verse 9. He says, teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. So, so the problem wasn't just they were going through these outward motions of religion, it's that they're interjecting worldly tradition and man-made uh, practices into worship. In other words, Jesus is saying here, your worship is in vain because you're doing it according to worldly preferences and human tradition, not according to Scripture. That's the same thing the Israelites were guilty of when they're transporting the ark. 
Rather than following God's instructions, they're following the example of the Philistines, hooking the, the, the ark up to a cart and having it pulled by oxen. Uh, dear ones, we are not permitted, nor should we ever desire to pattern our worship after the world. When the world dictates our worship, it's no longer the God of the Bible that we follow, but the God of this world. Look at 1 Corinthians 11 for a moment. These are instructions about the Lord's Supper. Now, surely, surely God doesn't care about our protocol for the Lord's Supper, right? If you look at 1 Corinthians 11, this whole section is dealing with orderliness in worship. And one of the issues is the way they're taking the Lord's Supper. And the Apostle Paul doesn't say to him, hey, do it however you want to. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. As you're gathering to take the Lord's Supper, in other words, it's not a blessing. It's a curse. And he's going to go on and explain that in a moment. Look, look at verses 27 and 29. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. See, God cares how we worship and it's a dangerous thing to be complacent about that. Let me show you in one more place in the New Testament. Look over at Hebrews 12. The whole book of Hebrews is addressed to people who, former Jews, who have left Judaism to follow Christ. Now, that would have been a great place for the author of Hebrews to say, you know what, now that the old covenant has passed away with all its restrictions, you can worship God any way that you want to. Look at Hebrews 12, 28. You're going to want to keep your Bibles open there because we're going to come back to verse 29 in a moment. But look at verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. How do we worship God? How, how do we worship God acceptably? With reverence and awe. And, and God is so gracious that he's prescribed for us in his word what reverent, awe-filled worship looks like. And so in answer to the question, does God still care, we've seen New Testament text after New Testament text showing us God cares how we worship. Let's move on to a second question. It's a very foundational one. We're going to spend just a couple minutes on this one. The second question is, who is worship for? Who is worship for? Are you allowed to end a sentence in a preposition? I googled it. You can grammarians here for whom is worship if there were a book written about evangelical christianity in america over the last 50 years it would undoubtedly discuss what are called the worship wars that's the battle that goes on in so many churches that divides so many churches between contemporary worship and traditional worship and so often you'll hear things like if the church wants to survive it's going to have to keep up with the times well, the problem with this issue isn't so much about which worship style is best. The core problem is that this, this whole issue, and, and American evangelical Christianity seems to have accepted this uh, wholeheartedly, the, the whole idea that worship is for us. That's the core problem. That's the problem behind the worship wars is the idea that, that worship is a product that we market to consumers. 
God is the consumer of our worship. It is for God. Look with me at 1 Kings 18 for a moment. This is the famous showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Baal was one of the false gods, maybe a lot of the false gods, we're not entirely sure, of the neighboring people. And the people of Israel were increasingly guilty of tolerating and then normalizing and then participating in Baal worship. And by the way, that's how idolatry gains ground, toleration, then normalization, then participation. And so Elijah has this showdown with the prophets of Baal. And whichever was the true and living God would consume the sacrifice presented with fire. And so they both go through their acts of worship. The prophets of Baal according to their own practice. Elijah according to the scriptures. And as the prophets of Baal go through their rituals, guess what happened? Nothing. And Elijah taunts them. Maybe your God's busy. Maybe he's in the restroom. Do we need to wait for him? And then Elijah worships the God of Scripture according to Scripture. And what happened? Fire comes down from heaven and consumes the offering. Remember back to Hebrews 12 where we just were. Just after it says, let us present acceptable worship. To worship him with awe and reverence. Right after that, verse 29 it says, because our God is a consuming fire. It's hearkening back to, to Elijah and the offering there at Baal. That the offering was for God. And Hebrews is making a connection there. That our worship must be for God. And that is so important because human sin always tempts us to look back upon ourselves. Uh, Luther, I think, rightly said we are curved in on ourselves. We can make anything about us. And so oftentimes we sit through a service and we might sing in that worship service. It's all about you, Jesus. And then we leave here and we go, you know, did I like the style of music? Did it speak to me? Did the hymns meet my approval? Was the sermon too long? And we make it all about ourselves as if we're the consumer of our worship. And then we take that idea and we move it beyond the bounds of our church and we start to cater the whole church around human appetites and human desires. That's what the worship war is. We need to be more casual. We need more contemporary music. We need to make the service shorter. Why? So the world will like what we're doing. So they'll want to buy what we're selling. You know, we want outsiders to come to First Scots. We, we want to warmly welcome people. We, we want you to, I want you to, I want the world to see how well you love each other. I want the world to see how you glorify God and enjoy him forever in your lives. You guys are so good at that. But worship is not for them. It's not for us. God is the consumer of our worship. And, and so worship that is pleasing to God must be done according to God's instruction. And so we've got to understand that. God is the consumer of our worship. Well, third, third question, has God told us how to worship him? Yes. Can we move on? Fourth point, no. Briefly, reformed churches practice what we call the regulative principle of worship, and all that means is we believe that God tells us in scripture what we are to do and not do in worship. God tells us what we are to do and not do. He doesn't tell us everything. We have to make certain decisions based on sanctified common sense. What time should worship be? How do we dress? What instruments do we use? And so on. 
but he tells us about the important things, what we call the elements of worship. You know, the Old Covenant provides a picture of this. In Exodus 25, verse 40, God demanded that the tabernacle and all its furnishings be made after the pattern shown to Moses on the mountain. In other words, and we saw this when we were in Hebrews last year, everything about New Covenant worship is patterned after heavenly realities. And so what we do in our worship is not according to our fancy, but according to God's prescription in the scriptures. Um, David learned that lesson the hard way, transporting the ark according to, to pragmatism rather than God's instructions. The worship of God must be governed according not to what works, but to God's word. You know, worship's not made acceptable simply through our sincerity. If we are sincere about it, worship's made acceptable through God's instructions. Listen to the Westminster Confession of Faith. It says, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, and he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations of men. So when we're thinking about worship, the question isn't, did I like it, but did it follow God's instructions in Scripture? Well, let's think about a couple of those things. We, we don't have time for all of them, but let's think about a few things scripture, the, the, that Scripture prescribes for our worship. One is the reading and preaching of Scripture ought to play a significant role in our worship. Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, uh, 13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And so when you worship, if you want to know, did we please God with that worship, one of the things you can ask is, did Scripture play a prominent role in it? Was, was Scripture held in high esteem in the ministry of, of worship? I've always found this fascinating. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul's talking about the priority of preaching in worship. And he's talking to Timothy, his protege, and he's telling them about people who are going to leave the church because they don't like the preaching of the word. And he says to them, they're going to find people to suit their fancy, to tickle their ears, and they will leave. And it's fascinating what Paul says is the prescription there. What do you do when people don't want to hear the word? You preach the word. He says to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So reading and preaching the word must be central to our worship. If the word is absent, it is not worship. Second, uh, Scripture teaches that we worship through congregational singing. Uh, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, we see that in both places. To speak to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You know, you do not see a prescription in the New Testament for solo worship. You don't see a prescription for having worship leaders that sing and everybody watches as an audience. What you see in the New Covenant, what you see in the Scriptures, is congregational worship. It is meant to be that the whole congregation is the choir of the church, that the whole congregation would lift their voices. It is not a performance to please men, but a service of worship to please God. And we can't stand by as an audience watching we are to offer ourselves to God as we lift our voices. And so, as you worship, the first thing we should not ask is, were the songs beautiful, but were the songs biblical? Were these things that are pleasing to God? Were the songs reflective of God's truth? 
Third, Scripture teaches our worship should be filled with prayer. Uh, Again, Paul, speaking to Timothy, says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Is prayer a significant part of the worship service? You know, we've had people here say, you know, I've never been to a worship service that had so much prayer in it. And sometimes they mean that as a compliment. I always take it that way. Some of you heard Marshall Klingscale's teaching a few weeks ago, and he shared this quote that there should be enough prayer in the worship service that those who don't believe in prayer will be absolutely bored by it. Fourth, we're instructed to take up the collection. 1 Corinthians uh, 16, Paul tells the Corinthians, says, do what the Galatians do, which is to take up the collection on the first day of the week, uh, the Sabbath. Fifth, the sacraments. We've already talked about this in 1 Corinthians 11, that Paul is telling us how to do things decently and in order, and he's talking about the sacraments here. Everything about the worship of the church must be brought into submission to the plain teaching of Scripture. God has given these instructions, the regulative principle. They're not suggestions that we substituted our will. God has told us how we're to worship Him in the Bible, and so here's what that means. The test of good worship is not whether we like it, but whether it conforms to the Scriptures. Next question, what's the danger of worshiping God according to our desires rather than His Word? Why does it matter? You know, there's always danger in disobedience. When God has spoken a clear word, we do not dare insert a parenthesis with our own opinions. And the particular danger of worshiping God according to our own will and our own imaginations is that it will inevitably end in idolatry. Look at Exodus 32 for a moment. There, Moses is up on Mount Sinai meeting with the Lord. They've been delivered from Egyptian slavery. The people want to worship something. And they want a God they can see. And so they go to Aaron the high priest, and they say, make us a God that we can serve. Look what Aaron did in verse 4, Exodus 32, verse 4. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now, Hebrew there, word for God and gods can be the same word. And so I think probably the better translation is this is your God. This is your God. Here's what's interesting. They're not making a false God in their minds. They're making a visual representation of the God who delivered them from Egypt. They're not saying we want to go off and follow other gods. They're just saying we want a God that we can make in our image. Look at verse 5. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made the a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. They weren't intending to turn away from God. They were just worshiping God according to their own imaginations. And they violated the second commandment in the process. They still spoke theologically in the same terminology that they should use, but they created the image of a God who is vastly different than how he sees himself. See, idolatry isn't just about worshiping the wrong gods. It also applies to when we worship the right God in a way that he hasn't instructed us. You know, the devil does not care who or how we worship as long as we don't worship God in the way that he's instructed us in Scripture. That's one danger. Let me show you another danger. Look with me at Psalm 115. The rival nations all around Israel, they had idols that they worshipped and they would ridicule the Israelites, that the Israelites didn't have a God that they could bow before. 
They had a God who was invisible. And so in Psalm 115, starting at verse 2, the psalmist says, Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Listen to this. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Look at this last line. This is incredibly important. Verse 8. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. It's a profound statement. The psalmist is saying here, worship is formative. It shapes our souls. We become like what we worship. And so there's a positive and the negative side to that. Negatively, we must not worship according to our own imaginations because deformed worship misshapes our souls. When we worship in any other way than God instructs us in Scripture, it deforms our souls. Uh, Psalm 106 verse 20 says that idolaters exchange the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. We were made to fix our eyes upward upon the God of the heavens, but idolatry fixes our eyes down here on the visible, the earthy, so that we become like the ox, never lifting our head up to see, always standing around, head down, eating grass. That's the negative side. The positive side is this. When we worship God as he instructs us in scripture, we become more and more like him. If idolaters become like what they worship, then those who worship the right God rightly become like him. That's a tremendous encouragement, isn't it? As you participate in worship, as God has commanded, and your heart is engaged, God is going to use that to shape you and make you more like himself. As we worship, God is is impressing the image of his son upon our mind and our affections and our souls so that the deepest parts of us are conformed more and more to him. And so as we worship according to Scripture, we become more like the God that we find in Scripture. Final question. Isn't God worthy of being worshipped as he instructs us? Isn't God worthy of being worshipped as he instructs us? We're dealing here with the sovereign Lord of the universe. How could we call him Lord and yet pay no attention to how he teaches us to worship him? How could we profess to worship him, but then we insert ourselves into the position of determining how God is best to be worshiped? You know, there is much that we can do in the church to manufacture emotion and build crowds and build up hype, but what we cannot manufacture is a sense of the majesty and the glory of God, a sense of the exaltation of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's what we find when we worship God according to Scripture. And when that happens, we ourselves are inwardly humbled in heart, filled with a sense of awe before God, realizing that when we worship, we have the extraordinary privilege of joining with the angels and the archangels led by our exalted Savior, Jesus Christ, to adore our glorious God. When we interject our own preferences and style and our own imaginations into that and we want to manufacture a way to worship, we strip ourselves of the joy of the glor- worshiping God in His glory as He's revealed it to us in Scripture. 
We don't want to interject our own preferences and, and worldly patterns because what we are doing in worship is so otherworldly. Worship is about Him, and as we worship Him according to Scripture, it sets our hearts aflame, not because a music leader has stirred up our emotions or a fog machine has created the right mood. We do so because God is worthy. Isn't it wonderful that we serve a God who has loved us enough to reveal Himself to us, to protect us from our own devices, and who delights to be present with us as we worship? Is He not worthy of our praise? And so it is right that we worship him according to scripture. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we thank you that in the scriptures you have given us everything for life and godliness. We, we may not have every question to everything we may want to know, but we know everything we need to know, that you have revealed yourself to us. You have made yourself known by your word. And as we worship you according to scripture, you are truly present with us. We thank you that in worship, you are stamping the image of Jesus Christ more and more upon our souls. And I pray that you would teach us to truly delight in worship as you have ordained it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.